Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Les Aria, a psychologist with Kaiser Permanente who specializes in treating physio-psychological disorders, persistent pain, and medically unexplained problems. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, I'm excited to have Les on the show. He and I can talk for hours. We're going to try to keep our conversations <laughs> focused. But I met Les about a year ago. Really, he got a hold of me, and then we met a couple times. We've become best friends here pretty quickly. And he's the head pain psychologist of the Northern California Kaiser System. And I, he has been quite successful in using the doc project type approach actually well before he knew about the doc project, but he also has a story about how he's incorporated some additional perspectives into his practice. And Les, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome, David. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background, about how long you've been there and how your perspective has evolved from when you started to where it is right now? Sure, sure, absolutely. So I've been in practice for 16 years as a pain psychologist. And embarrassingly, when I started to do this kind of work um, about 16 years ago, I started to see results. And when I did share it with a few colleagues, um, both my peers, uh, pain psychologists and medical providers, they actually kind of chuckled at it and said it was a fluke or luck. And so I kept to myself for several years as I continued to learn more about John Sarno and, and a variety of um, other providers. And, uh, and that's how I started to evolve and realized I started to see good success. But even till today, many of my colleagues still find it hard to believe that people can get better fully and completely. Right. I think one of the biggest messages lesson I want to get out there is that there's, a, there's an increasing number of physicians around the country that are seeing the same success we're seeing. And it's not so much sometimes a magic formula, it's basically taking the standard of medical care and applying it in a systematic manner. And I think that the essence of solving chronic pain is allowing people to feel safe. And when you feel safe, it allows your body chemistry to optimize from a stress profile to a play profile. So you're full of of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, the GABA drugs, all great chemical bath compared to adrenaline, cytokines, histamines, and cortisol, which really fires up your nervous system. And by allowing people to feel safe, it makes a huge difference. And Les has been actually taking this approach for a long time. And how did you find me? Because you called me. I remember our first conversation really Mm -hmm. clearly. And I was curious how you ran across my work and the whole doc project. Well, like um, any good provider, you seek out the best sources, right? And um, I read your book, been tracking your podcast and uh, and a variety of other works and videos actually on YouTube. And I wanted to communicate to you how happy I was. Uh, your your four-step process really has helped a lot of my patients. And many of my patients are not able to come into the clinic. So what do you do? So I started to develop a home-based program using your uh, structure book and uh, website. So that permitted the entry of um, getting to know your work. And I just thought after several months of using it, actually about a a little bit over 12 months, I decided to reach out to you and go, it's time to let you know that this is awesome. And uh, and, and not just from my perspective, but several of the hundreds of patients who've actually used your book and 
and resources. So very grateful that the website is free and great information, practical information um, that I was so pleased about. So I just had to reach out to you and touch someone. <laughs> no, it was great. And you had a story you told me right from the beginning about a gentleman who had um, lost his leg in a car accident. That sort of struck me as something I didn't think was actually possible myself. Yeah, this is a very interesting um, individual, like all my patients, who really suffer and have been told by the um, biomedical committee or the, com the medical community that um, community that recovery is not possible. This patient came to me on high um, medications, lots, lots of medications, high dosages, and had been struggling. And when he saw me, he basically sighed and said, "So you're a head guy, not not a real doctor." Right. <laughs> which I get quite frequently. Right. And uh, with that said, he, he felt that this was, the, um, this was the last stop. And what's interesting about this, in less than six months, in less than six months, he was off some of those lethal medications and started to recover and for the first time experienced um, pain-free symptoms. He was blown away with it, um, that he could actually become this and um, and what's interesting is this is he's changed his whole life perspective. He came from a really hard life um, from childhood, even adulthood, and uh, lots of chronic chaos um, within his life, and struggled and struggled and struggled using what most people do in America is food and substances and uh, misuse of that. And uh, today I can tell you this is um, his healthy mind and healthy body and pain free. Right. Well, I think that we both think that really treating chronic pain is really a primary care wellness program. Mm. I mean, right. you can't really solve chronic pain. You can literally move away from it into wellness. And, you know, they always keep putting this on a psychologist's lap, like we can't find anything wrong, so it must be psychological. And you and I both know it's about the body's chemistry. Right. And there's also multiple, multiple facets to pain. And it turns out that everything works a little bit in chronic pain, but nothing works in isolation. And so it's a combination of sleep, the stress, the medications, physical conditioning, life outlook, all those things make a difference and all of them count. And it's always different for a different person. In my perception of the doc project is that it, it became effective because I tried it out myself for 15 years, making mostly mistakes, to be honest with you. And finally, slowly coming to things that seem to work. Then I, when I transmitted it to my patients, I wasn't transmitting it very well. But eventually the website evolved from a five-stage to four-stage process. I think it's much clearer than it used to be. I think the last six months is getting even clearer. And again, your input's been really helpful on this. So with this one gentleman, I mean, it was a pretty dramatic story. I honestly did not think phantom limb pain could disappear with the tools, but I've now heard several stories that are similar to this. So I'm now convinced, actually, I think I sent you a letter for a gentleman who I talked to last week who had had 20 years of chronic pain, high-dose narcotics, 27 surgeries. Wow. Yeah. And he's he's pain right. he's pain free off all meds and doing just fine. And and our teams actually talked to him three or four times to make sure this guy's for real. And he is. It's amazing. And he's anxious to share his story. So I again put him in the category of this is not a solvable problem. But I'm now convinced that if you're open to ideas, or as one of my successes said, suspend disbelief and engage mm. in the tools that change your brain that you can rewire about almost anything. I mean, it doesn't matter where the source of the pain comes from. I think you can rewire around it, and especially with phantom limb pain. I mean, you can't do any more surgery on it because there's no limb to do surgery on, right? Yeah. 
No, I, I think it's fantastic. It, it reminds me of a similar story, except um, it wasn't related to um, uh, an accident. This was by choice, a woman I saw many, many moons ago, who actually wanted her ankle amputated. And um, so I was the, um, the guy to do the evaluation, uh, a psych screen. And I communicated to the surgeon as this is, she had ankle pain and they couldn't figure out where the source was coming from. Long story short of this is she demanded and threatened to see the surgeon. The surgeon acquiesced and um, against, uh, I can't quite tell the surgeon to not do a surgery or do a surgery, but I said the risk factor is quite high based on her on the ACE scores, adversive child, um, childhood experiences, adulthood adversive experiences, and current life pressures, those three things set her up. And here's what happened. The ankle got amputated and um, phantom limb st- uh, set in. What's right. really cool about this is that patient also today is pain-free. However, if we can kind of take a step back and realize, as you keep saying here, is this is we need to kind of suspend disbelief and uh, and I think that's what it is. It's probably one of the first and most important steps is for this really to work is is it's similar to um, I think you know this fellow uh, Dr. Similarweis um, uh, Similarweis right. in Austria, right? So right. so in that sense is we're like junior Similarweises, um, right. in that we're trying to show the world that there is a different way to deal with this. So I have a, a blog I wrote that I'm actually going to post again relatively quickly. It's called Normal Arms Amputated. And this is a classic story is that there's a paper actually published, which I think it's brave of this person to publish it. There's a 1995 paper that looked at 28 patients who underwent amputation of arm pain on dead normal arms, completely normal arms. <clears throat> so basically, well, you know, it's, it, and so people, so, only two out of the 28 get rid of their pain. And 26 out of 28 still suffer the same pain or worse after the amputation. Of course, they're missing an arm. So the thing is, <clears throat> I think what well, lesson I'd like to both convey to the audience really clearly, that chronic pain is a disease of the brain. Yes. <clears throat> right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Can you explain that a little bit to the, to the group? Sure, absolutely. And great sim- simplification here is this is, when the pain actually starts, it's in a physical part of the brain, the somatosensory, and after about three to six months, it relocates downtown to the middle part of the brain. And literally, chronic pain itself just shifts brain structures. So just like OCD, they used to think it was more psychological, it is now a brain disorder. Um, and I think in the years to come, uh, folks will actually hear and read about that pain, persistent pain is actually a brain disorder. Right. And of course, what people forget, <clears throat> somehow medicine has sold to the world that these bone spurs or arthritis, all these different things are the cause of the pain. Right. The way, only way pain is perceived is by the brain. In other words, you're interpreting sensory input. And if it reaches a dangerous threshold, your brain then sends off a signal that says this is dangerous. And I, so if you didn't have a nervous system, you wouldn't have pain. Right. Absolutely. So the, so I'm going to say this really clearly. People get upset with this, but brain, any pain is in your head, but it is not psychological. It's just a recept. Correct. It's just interpretation of signals. Just like I look at this table, my brain says this is a table because I'm, I'm going by feel, color, touch, everything. My brain now interprets this as a table. There's nothing in my eyes that says it's a table. And my cat 
jumps on the table, but she doesn't have an idea in her head that this is a table. So right. your brain has to interpret sensory input to come up with reality. Same thing with pleasure. You have all these signals come in that say things are pleasurable or not, right? Where does that interpretation come from? Right. I, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head right there. And I think one of the things, hopefully the listeners, and I'm sure your listeners know this already, but just in case, that I think there's a difference between pain and nociception. And most physicians uh, who do this work and psychologists and and allied professionals, they miss uh, not so much by uh, on purpose. When information comes from the body, that's nociception. Right. And it, it doesn't become pain until the brain um, pulls in biography information, right? Uh, past childhood stuff and current and past um, stressors and chronic stressors and uh, in all five senses. So basically every single information the brain uses, it's to kind of, as you said, am I safe? And so that's when pain becomes, and many of my patients actually are starting to recognize this and when I work with them is their first step is to really understand, to get them re-educated on that pain is the brain's opinion. Right. Well, I'd like to <clears throat> jump a little bit into some of the approaches that you actually physically use to get things started for people to heal. Because the, the good news is it's a very self-directed process. And we both think that anxiety is a pain that mental mm -hmm. pain is actually a bigger problem than the physical pain, and that some animals have chronic pain, but most mammals don't. And I'm now becoming more and more convinced that human consciousness in the form of thoughts and concepts is actually the source of most chronic pain. Because we know thoughts and concepts go to the same part of the brain as a physical threat, but you cannot escape your thoughts. Therefore, every human being is subjected to, to sustained elevations of stress chemicals. Now, if you have a chaotic childhood, we call them A scores, adverse childhood experiences score, score, that the current environment seems more dangerous because when you were a kid, it was dangerous. It's like my cat is safe in our house, but if she was raised in the street and abused, then she would not feel comfortable anywhere. She would be on the alert all the time. So I personally came from a chaotic abusive environment, as you know, and so I lived in a dangerous environment that, thought, uh, that I thought was normal so my nervous system, until I've actively calmed it down, was hypervigilant. It was on the alert all the time, which keeps your body chemistry in an unfavorable state. So again, it's not always psychological as much as it is a link of thoughts to chemical reactions. Anxiety is the elevation of stress chemicals. The way you decrease anxiety is simply decreases stress chemicals. That's a physiological process, not necessarily a psychological process. Right. Could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit from a psychological yeah, perspective? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I think it's probably just to kind of hit the same tempo. I think it's better for us to let the listeners know and, uh, and providers to know that this is more of a neurophysiological perspective. And uh, as we both share this perspective, um, we talk about the poly and polyvagal informed provider or patient. And so talking about stress, um, just working backwards here using the polyvagal theory, it's uh, developed by Stephen Porges, as you mentioned, is when we go from immobilization, as many of our patients are shut down, the muscles are weak, the body's not permitting them to do what they need to do. We go from immobilization or threat, and then we go into danger, which is the stress and the chronic stress. And that's the mobilization part of the polyvagal that um, speaks to it that our body is fired up and wired up uh, for danger and threat, uh, for danger, right? And then 
the only way to do that, as you've mentioned in the step process and in my process of helping patients, is to do anything and everything um, to reduce the stress chemicals. So uh, as you would say, reduce the stress chemicals and you'll start to see a change. And that's some solid truth there. So the uh, variety of ways I do that from meditation to mindful movement. And, uh, and one of the things that's, uh, that's, that you write, um, no pun intended, write about is the expressive writing. That is so powerful uh, for myself. Uh, my patients chuckle at me when I walk around with um, a, no, uh, a sticky pad in my pocket. And if something bothers me, I'll pull it out, scribble, and then rip it up and toss it away. Really? So, you know, yeah, so it's, uh, they think it's hilarious. But what's really neat about this is the, my patients have started to do that. You don't okay. need to sit down for 20 minutes and do this. If something really is... Um, kind of bugging me and uh, and I've used my breath and my meditation and it's still swirling around. So, and I know the stress chemicals are lit up. So basically my brain is saying using the polyvagal theory is I'm sensing some sort of danger, known or unknown. And I think that's the part I wanted to emphasize um, to many of my patients is that is this is not your fault, meaning that it's the evolutionary process of the brain. So many of my patients feel that um, I can't stop my thinking. I'm trying to meditate. I'm working the, the program. I'm, I'm reading his book. I'm following everything he's saying. I'm, and, and it's not working. It's because they're still using an old perspective that this is a neurophysiological response to something the brain is sensing as I'm in danger. So that's why I think different ways to reduce the stress chemicals is crucial. I think the link that's missing, which I'm a little perplexed why it's missing, is because in medical school, we learn a lot about the human body. I mean, we know everything there is to know possible with histology, pathology, neuroanatomy, et cetera. We know a lot about the human body. And somehow we know for 70 years that chronic stress kills people. People right. die on average of seven years earlier. There's mm -hmm. higher autoimmune disorders. There's a paper out of Scandinavia that shows that there's a 40% higher chance of an autoimmune disorder if you're under chronic stress. Well, okay, so you die seven years earlier, you have double the heart disease, double hypertension, double diabetes, high suicide rate, um, and people just simply die seven years earlier. How is that psychological? That's the sustained levels of exposure to stress chemicals. Right. Driving your car down the freeway in second gear, you're just gonna break down. So what people don't understand is that the, the, the psyche or the thoughts, again, are sensed the same way as this table or chair is. They get embedded in your brain. They create the same chemical reaction and you can't escape your thoughts. So right. even though there's mental input, it's that output that's the problem. And so by learning to auto-regulate your body's chemistry, then you have control. Right. Just a learned skill, which is not primarily psychological. So I'm curious from your perspective, you're one of the few psychologists, Fred Luskin's another friend of mine who thinks the same way. There's very few psychologists because there's some, I'll just be, I, I could be way off base. <laughs> so my wife said, be careful because I'm not trying to irritate the psychologist. I think psychology is a huge adjunct to this process. Right. But right. I'm curious that the, again, I was in psychotherapy twice a week for 15 years. That's a long time. Okay. <laughs> So there is a concept that if you talk about it enough and understand it enough, it's actually going to solve the problem. In other words, talk therapy. Mm -hmm. So I'm full agreement that I think it was supportive. I'm not against it by any means. In fact, I love working with psychologists when I have the chance. 
but it's a different role is that you got to teach a patient skills to take care of their own body's chemistry. Right. You can provide guide and wisdom, support, direction, all those things you can provide, which are critical. But when you treat the physiological problem, quote, psychologically, it's a big problem. So I'm curious, my sense is that your viewpoint is quite a bit different than most psychological perceptions of it and physicians, by the way. Yeah. And most psychologists don't buy off on that. And of course, what doctors do, we say, okay, we can't find a surgical problem or structural problem. It must be, quote, psychological, and they run them off to the psychologist, right? Right, 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 right. Okay, so I'm still, again, interested how you came to this perspective. I'm sorry, let me ask you a different question. I know how you came to the perspective, but how is this perspective different from the traditional psychological approach? Yeah, so this is very different because, you know, it's, there are many moving parts to this, and the traditional psychologist and therapist, and I trained them, um, both in pain psychology and general psychology, is that we're taught from a very um, early part of our career, uh, training in school, is that physicians know a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm chuckling because when it's really behind the curtain, they just like both of us, you know, they know what they know and, right. and they do the very best. Right. But what's really intriguing about this is therapists and psychologists alike basically um, acquiesce, give, hand over that if the doctor says the person has a left herniated disc and that was 20 years ago, um, that's the reason why, because the doctor said, and the MRI scan says so. Right. And so the psychologist, like a, um, and again, it sounds terrible to say this, is that it's, they, they basically say, well, I guess they're, that's, I'm, I don't know anything about the physiology of that, so therefore, but I do know. And uh, I think a variety of people in our field have written about this, uh, especially Laura Mosley, uh, well-renowned right. neuroscientist, right? Um, right. And uh, he's written about that. He did a study and even uh, wrote a blog on it that psychologists, the problem is that therapists and psychologists and allied health professionals is they look at pain as separate and when really it is a brain body uh, disorder in that sense. Right. And um, so the psychologists basically believe is, let me show you um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Let me change your thinking and uh, let's kind of do that. And you just have to, and this is the part that really just even bringing it up right now, talk about my body reacting. I have this little anger uh, I'll definitely see my <laughs> therapist, or I'll write about it, is I have this, this irritation that says, well, you just have to manage it. Right. And that viscerally just pisses me off. I'm sorry, you mean manage the chronic pain? Yeah, basically, right. you just have to suck it up and manage. And, and then they're not saying that, so, so no hate mail, please. But the point <laughs> here is this, is they basically say, is let me show you how to manage it. And I'm talking about, these are my colleagues and very close friends uh, who are in this business still believe that this thing called persistent pain is biological and nothing else. And uh, so they use treatments to help people manage their lives. And if you know the truth and, um, and you want to help people set free from the suffering, it really has um, a very interesting effect when people apply this true way of teaching um, pain-free. First of all, chronic pain is a solvable, curable problem. It is not to be managed. You and I both yes. see, we see it, we, it, with the correct diagnosis and approach, it is a solvable problem. The data out of Boston shows that only 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain, less than 1% enjoy it. And you and I both know we love seeing patients in chronic pain and the more severe, the better. 
you met with this friend of mine, Dr. Dr. Clausen in Seattle, who yes. loves treating severe chronic pain patients because, of course, we like seeing anybody. I mean, if it's mild, why we're grateful people haven't suffered for so much. But we're watching people go from the depths of darkness to get not only going to pain free. And you just told the story that when people break loose of chronic pain, they thrive at a level that they never thrived at before. Right. They, I mean, they, it just incredible. I mean, same thing with me. I mean, when you're not fighting the mental pain, i.e., anxiety, right, then your creativity comes back, your consciousness expands, and life changes dramatically. It's not even a close call. Yep. So, and you don't have to answer this question too directly. I'm just curious <laughs> from your perspective. I mean, you've obviously been through the process yourself, to large different degrees. I mean, I went from being in the depths of despair to, you know, um, as you know, I'm excited about lots of different stuff. My sense is you're the same thing. So I'm curious in your own journey, how your perspective, how this has affected you personally. Well, in several, in several ways, um, in many, many ways. So me struggling with my own chronic pain um, and also anxiety. It's so funny. Many of my patients say, is you look so calm, sound so calm, but tell you the truth, I'm a, I'm a worry ward. And so I never knew what it was that I was feeling all through high school, uh, even younger, and, uh, and through college and grad school and, and residency. I had this intense impending doom and not feeling good enough uh, for a variety of reasons. And having, um, having this experience really helps me appreciate patients, not just from a psychological perspective, but also from a physiological perspective. But here's one thing I want to mention, and I send this message home clearly over and over again to my residents and um, interns at training, is this, you can never take a patient um, deep enough and far enough as where you've not been before. So right. you can't quite take someone through this pain journey if you really have not worked the program, if you really don't grasp it. And uh, it's really helpful to bring in your um, healing wounds, you know, all that you've been through to help patients understand. Because when they look at us, perhaps they, they see us as, well, you're one of those normal people who don't right. have any problems. But the reality is this is um, helping patients understand that you have the same struggles as they do helps right. normalize it. Right. No, my wife, my wife will testify that I am not normal. <laughs> <laughs> so great. we all know that. But, no, I mean, it's, that's the part. I'm actually going back into counseling myself because I have a problem. So I teach this stuff. And I mean, I'm a thousand times better than I was 20 years ago. I mean, I don't get triggered as often. Um, it was very humbling for me to realize that my entire life was one massive trigger for about 40 years and mm -hmm. was sober now is that I live most of my life being relatively calm and connected. And then when I get triggered, I had horrible family patterns and the triggers are powerful. They're much stronger than the conscious brain. So when I get triggered and angry, it's really disconcerting because I, I supposedly teach this stuff. So what I've had to work on myself is this emotional perfectionism, allowing myself to suffer mm -hmm. and struggle like everybody else. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of it. But I also will say something to your comment is that you don't have to, I don't think, it, I mean, I know you don't have to go through this degree of suffering that I went through. I don't know how much suffering you went through. Right. So the key is learning the tools. And mm -hmm. sometimes you're forced to suffer a lot to be motivated to learn the tools. But we have many patients who are not in the deep, dark hole, who just simply use the tools from a perspective, I'm going to make my life better. Right. And so they had the advantage of not having to dig out of this deep, deep hole. And so I, so that's why I say the tools are universal. 
I am very clear that what I offer the world is not, it's been, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new in my book. It's a well-established medical treatments. My contribution that is organized the way people can understand it. It has lots of stories, but they're simply well-established documented medical treatments. And right now the medical profession is actually offering treatments regularly, regularly that have been documented not to work. They know, they, they know they don't work, but they're offering them on a regular basis. We're actually hurting people pretty aggressively and we know it. Right. So my thing is to my group that I work with is that, look, we don't have to be defensive here. They do. Right. As you know, I, I've now seen so much terrible things happening with ineffective treatments. I actually quit my practice to you know do this full time. But anyway, so we're out of time here. So I, 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 I'm anxious to talk to you in the second half of this podcast about your specific approach to what's going on, maybe talk about some of the things that we've done, done with, um, with the polyvagal group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to have you just make some comments about some of the maybe two or three things that you'd like your, the audience to hear from your perspective. Sure. That'd be great. Um, so in summary, I think that we both think that chronic pain is solvable. Yes. That we're talking about feeling safe which dramatically changes the body's chemistry. And then I've been, and then I think the other thing we'll talk about in the second part of this podcast is that my book's a framework that allows a discussion to occur, but really it's the doctor-patient relationship that really makes things work the best. And so feeling right. safe is a big deal. And, I, and everybody I know that's effective in treating chronic pain actually talks to their patients. Anyway, Les, thanks for being on this program, and your insights are wonderful, as usual. I've looking forward to this for a while, and uh, thank you. Great, David. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Les Aria, for being on the program today and for sharing his insights into chronic pain, as well as stories of patients who made full recoveries from chronic pain using that awareness. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.